You've got a friend in me When the rollers rub ahead And you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed You just remember what your old pal said Boy, you got a friend in me got a friend in me You've got a friend in me You've got troubles and I've got them too There isn't anything that I wouldn't do for you We'll stick together We'll see it through Cause when you got a You've got a friend in me some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am, bigger and stronger too, or maybe, but none of them will ever love you the way I do, it's me and you, and as the years go by, our friendship will never die, you're gonna see it's all destiny. You got a friend in me. Oh, you got a friend in me. Oh, you got a friend in me. Well, good morning and welcome to Pinion Hills Community Church. Who's excited to be here this morning? Well, good. If you've got extra seats, if you could move to the middle a little bit, meet in the middle and a little bit in those seats. we still got people coming in and looking for chairs. That would be helpful for us. Did you have a good Valentine's Day? Did anybody have a, a memorable Valentine's Day? Yeah? Yeah. Did anybody have a little extra at the end? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. That only makes sense if you were here for our Valentine's Day night, but I hope you had a great weekend. Today, we're continuing on in our series called Drift, and uh, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. It was January 10th of 1992. A ship set sail from Hong Kong, China to head on over to Tacoma, Washington, going through the North Pacific. Now, this ship was filled with all sorts of Chinese goods in it, jam-packed in all these shipping containers. Tons and tons of products put in these cardboard boxes, shoved in shipping containers. Now, the shipping containers on board the ship, they were made out of metal, huge, big, you know, heavy things, eight feet wide, eight feet, eight feet tall, 20 feet long, and they would stack these, these shipping containers on top of each other. So there'd be six of them stacked in a row, and there'd be these towers all throughout the, the, the ship. Well, just to make sure that they didn't topple over during the wind and the waves on the ship, they would buckle them down and strap them down with metal straps. Well, after this ship took off from Hong Kong and on its way over to Tacoma, Washington, at some point, they ventured into a storm that was a bigger storm, a crazier storm than usually that they would face. The waves in the storm were about 40 to 50 feet tall. That's a huge storm. Those are big waves that they're going through. And so the ship would lean to the right and lean to the left. It's called listing, where the ship would list to the, the right and list to the left. And at one point, the ship was leaning. It was listing so much that the weight on those metal straps holding those shipping containers, it became too much, and those metal straps snapped, and many of the shipping containers fell into the ocean. Dozens of shipping containers fell into the ocean. Now, one of those shipping containers hit the side of the deck, and it burst open, and then it fell into the ocean. 
And so as that one began to sink to the bottom of the Pacific, hundreds of cardboard boxes started floating to the top of the ocean. Now, meanwhile, the ship continued on. They didn't bother to stick around and clean up the mess that they had just made. So they continue on, but all these boxes are now floating by themselves in the North Pacific Ocean. Well, the wind, the waves, the water, eventually it wore down those cardboard boxes. And after a while, the cardboard boxes all split open as well, releasing the contents of hundreds of boxes. And what it released was thousands upon thousands of yellow rubber duckies. <laughs> rubber ducky, you're the one. Check out this picture from the ocean. There's all the rubber duckies finally freed. <laughs> finally on their way. It wasn't just yellow duckies. It was also red beavers and blue turtles and green frogs. All these thousands, 28,800 toys were released into the ocean with nobody to clean them up. <laughs> every one of these toys was made by the same manufacturer in China. And every one of the toys on the bottom had a little phrase that said the first years. That was like the model of that particular toy. Well, meanwhile, the company in China, they discontinued that model of toy. So all these toys that are floating through the ocean now become a collector's item because they're not available for purchase anymore because they stopped making these toys. So oceanographers, scientists, treasure hunters, all sorts of people began trying to find these toys. And these toys began to float and drift all throughout the ocean. Some of these toys began to show up on the shores of China. They began to show up on the shores of Alaska, Northern California. Some of them showed up all the way to Hawaii and the beaches of Hawaii. Some of them drifted all the way down to South, uh, South uh, uh, America and then further down South to Australia and Antarctica. These toys were showing up all over the place, but it was 11 years later, 11 years after this shipping debacle took place, that a woman went down to her beach in Maine on the East Coast of the United States, went down to her beach and she saw something floating on top of seaweed. She went down there and picked it up. It was a white bleached, uh, a little little bath toy, and on the bottom it said, the first years. It is believed by oceanographers and scientists that that little rubber ducky somehow in some way had traveled 11,000 miles to get to the other side of the United States. Now this is a crazy, crazy idea and a crazy journey. Let me put up a world map for you so you can see exactly what this might look like. Here's the journey of these little duckies, right? So I got my little laser pointer. I don't know if you can see it. I'm pointing right on the ship right there. So, so here's where the ship uh, had their little debacle. Over here is, is where China is in Hong Kong. On the other side, you'll see the United States over here. So the ship had their debacle somewhere in the North Pacific. Those little duckies were found all the way down here, way over here in South, uh, South America. But the, it is believed that that little ducky that showed up in Maine went all the way north through this little passage right here, all the way around over here by Iceland, Greenland, over through the Atlantic, all the way over to here where Maine is. Now that is one heck of a journey. Now that's one theory. The other theory is that it didn't take the north route. It took the south route and came all the way over here. Probably didn't go through the Panama Canal because there's little locks and stuff. You probably can't get through there. So it probably went all the way down here by Peru, down by South America, maybe by Argentina, up by Brazil, all the way past the Bahamas, all the way through the Atlantic up to Maine. Now, regardless of whether it took the north route or the south route, that is one heck of a journey for that little rubber ducky. You're the one, you're the one who traveled 11,000 miles over the course of 11 years. It was such a crazy story that somebody wrote a book. A guy named Donovan Hahn wrote the book called Moby Duck. <laughs> inspired by this whole story. Here's a, here's a picture of the cover. It's actually a best-selling book on Amazon. You can go buy it if you want. The, the tagline of this book is this. It's the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea and the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, including the author, who went in search for them. Now, if you want to be a fool like one of those people in search for one of these duckies, if you happen to find one, hold on to it because each duck, each one of those toys is valued at over $1,000 at auction now because they're such a rare, a rare toy. Now, why 
do I share that story? I share that story because once something is set adrift, once something starts drifting, it has the potential to keep drifting and keep drifting and keep drifting and keep drifting until something stops it from drifting. Last week, we started this new series called Drift, and we talked about how we as people, we as humans, tend to drift in a lot of areas of our lives, but one of the areas that we drift a lot and most frequently is when it comes to relationships, and we're not called to to be people who are divided. We're called to be people who are united, so we don't want to drift away from people that God wants us to be close to. That's why we shared, how do you stop from drifting? Hebrews 6.19 says this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. How do you stop from drifting? You throw out an anchor. An anchor is going to stop you from drifting. Now, what are we anchored to? We're anchored to God's word. At least we should be anchored to God's word. If we follow God's word, we'll be close in our relationships. We'll be close in our relationship with our spouse, with our friends, with our kids, with God, if we're obedient and anchoring ourselves to God's word. Now, last week, I talked about marriage. If you happen to be here last week, then you heard the song. We had a feature song at the end of the sermon uh, by a band named Diamond Rio. They came out, and uh, our, our band played one of my favorite country songs of all time, Meet in the Middle. It's a fantastic song. I start walking your way. You start walking mine. We meet in the middle, neat that old Georgia pine. We gain a lot of ground, because we both give a little. Ain't no road too long, because we Yeah! Give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah. Babe, I love the way we work it out. That's what love is all about. I could just keep going. I could, I could sing that song for days, for weeks, for, for months. But I, but I shared last week, I said, hey, if you and your spouse have been drifting apart, perhaps you need to do something to meet in the middle. Maybe if you've been drifting, pull out a paddle and start paddling. You start paddling her way, she'll start paddling yours, and you meet in the middle. You know, as a pastor, I don't want to just tell you what to do and not do it myself. I want to lead by example. So this last week, I was thinking about the, the sermon that I preached last Sunday. I was like, you know what? I want to do what I'm talking about. So I come home from work one day, and I see my wife in the kitchen. She's over there, and she looks at me, and I'm, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to paddle her way. So I just do this, right? <laughs> and in my mind, I'm humming, I'm paddling your way, you paddle my But I'm just quiet. I just, I'm just doing this, right? <laughs> and she looks at me, and I'm thinking she's going to start paddling back my direction. So I'm paddling her way. I got you know, my, my googly eyes on. And she looks at me. She's like, honey, what are you doing? I said, babe, I'm paddling your way. Are you going to start paddling mine? She's like, oh. I said, what do you mean, oh? Aren't you glad that I'm paddling your way? She's like, well, yeah, but I thought that you were pretending to mop the floor. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not mopping the floor. I'm I'm paddling your way so you can paddle my way. So she says, well, when you're done paddling my way, can you just go ahead and mop the floor? <laughs> you see, when, when we happen to be drifting apart from our spouse, we got to do everything we can to get back to the middle because that's where we want to be anchored. We want to be anchored to God's word. We talked about marriage last week. Today, however, we're talking about friendship. Now, when I say the word friendship, many of you are like, eh, whatever. I don't need friends. I've got my wife. I've got my husband. I've got my kids. I've got perhaps my dog or my goat. I talked to somebody last week who has a, has a falcon, like that's their friend. Like, I have my falcon. I'm good. <laughs> But, but we are called to be people who are unified, to do life with other people. You might be used to doing life alone. You might need your alone time. In fact, many of you probably would benefit by having this shirt. Check out this shirt. My alone times, time is sometimes for your safety. Some of you are like, somebody, amen, yeah, get away from me, I'll kill you. <laughs> Some of you, I get it. I know you, you need your alone time. I understand that. But, but all of our life is not intended to be alone. 
sometimes when we're drifting away from other people, that's not what God intended. He intends us not to be divided from other people, but be united. And it, when it comes to friendship, the Bible talks about that. Look at what it says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10. Solomon writes this, he says, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other one up. But pity anyone who fools or who falls and has no one to help them up. <laughs> I'm like Mr. T up here. I pity the fool. <laughs> but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Two are better than one. You might be thinking, well, no, one is better than two. But God's word says, no, you should have two. You should have at least two, because... When life gets, tar- gets hard, gets difficult, then you have somebody to help you along in that journey. You have somebody to help lift you up. I found this, this graphic recently. Check this graphic out. We are best friends. Always remember that if you fall, I will pick you up after I finish laughing. <laughs> Maybe that's how your friends are. They're sarcastic and they laugh when you make mistakes, but at least they're there to help you. They help you, help you through your journey. But as we're looking and trying to figure out who should we become friends with, consider the words of Solomon in Proverbs 12, 26. He says this. He says, the righteous choose their friends carefully. Now, why is it important for us to choose our friends carefully? There's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because perhaps the friends that you choose will be lifelong friends, people that you do life with for a long, long time, perhaps for years or decades to come. Proverbs 18.24 says this, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is such thing as a friend who sticks closer than even family. I came across this graphic that kind of describes that. Friends buy you food. Best friends eat your food. Isn't that true? (laughs) That's the kind of friendship that we are looking for. The kind of friend that says, I can just come over and walk into your house and open up the fridge and eat something without violating your friendship because you're that tight. You're that close. You see, this isn't every friendship that you have. It's a unique type of friendship, a friendship that lasts perhaps a lifetime. I like this quote. We will always be friends until we are old and senile. Then we can be new friends. (laughs) Who are you again? We should be friends. We should have that type of friendship where we can be friends with people for our entire lives. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says this, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken cord of three strands. Notice that Solomon doesn't say a cord of a thousand strands, a cord of a hundred strands is not easily broken. He says a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, God's word is not implying that you need to have hundreds or thousands of friends, but maybe two to three life-giving, lifelong types of friends, which means perhaps you can be selective and be careful with the the type of friends that you choose. It reminds me of this quote, a friend is like a book. You don't need to read all of them. Just pick the best ones. The reality is that many people don't pick any books at all. They don't pick any friends at all. When you're going through life alone, you're going through life isolated, and you're okay. You're content with that, but that's not what God has intended for you. If you're taking notes, write this down. What God intends for you is that you have at least a few friends. What God intends for you is that you have at least a few friends. You don't need thousands. You don't need tens of thousands. But if you have two to three close friends, those are the friends you don't want to drift away from. They're lifelong friends. They're rare friends. So, so if you have that type of friend, you don't want to allow them to drift away despite the circumstances that you have in life. You want to hold on to those types of friends. Now, there's some warning, warning signs, some red flags that indicate you might be drifting away from a, a good friend. Here's uh, some of the red flags that in, might indicate that you've been drifting away from a close friend. You spend less time together. Neither one of you reaches out nearly as often as you used to. There's more negative interactions with that friend than positive. 
You're holding back from them. You can feel a disconnect from them. You feel tense when they're around. Your lives have changed. Your, your life has become more important than the friendship itself. Or what about this? You harbor your feelings instead of opening up about what's wrong. Any one of those could be a red flag indicating that you might be drifting away from somebody who could be a lifelong friend. But the Bible is very clear that we should do life with each other. We shouldn't be divided. We should be united with other people. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So God is telling us we need to have people who are in our corner, people who are able to fight for us. So today, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into a section of scripture that talks about friendship, godly friendship, and how we can be that type of friend in our lives. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. It's in the New Testament of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then it's in the book of Acts. So you can flip over there, open up your version app. And what we're going to look at is a guy named Joseph. Everybody say Joseph. Say it a little bit louder. Everybody say Joseph. There you go. So Joseph is the guy we're going to be looking at. Now, to clarify, this is not the Joseph from the Old Testament. There's a Joseph in the Old Testament who was sold by his brothers into slavery. He becomes a leader in Egypt. We're not talking about that Joseph. There's also a Joseph in the New Testament that's very uh, well-known. He's very well-known because he's the husband of Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph, they're a part of the Christmas story, right? We're not talking about that Joseph either. There's a third Joseph that most people don't know of. Most people aren't familiar with this guy, and there's a reason why, and we're going to find out why that reason, what that reason is in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 36. This is where we're introduced to Joseph. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now here we're introduced to Joseph, and in that verse, that's the first and only time he's ever referred to in Scripture as Joseph. Every other time that we see him referred to in Scripture, he's referred to as Barnabas. Now why is he called Barnabas? Barnabas is a nickname that his friends had given to him. His biological name is Joseph, but everybody calls him Barnabas. In fact, throughout the rest of the Scripture, we see Barnabas, 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 and never see Joseph again. Why is he referred to as Barnabas? Because he's an encourager. He was known for his encouragement. He was known for being an encourager to all of his, his friends. Now, to be honest with you, I think we all need a Barnabas in our lives. We all need somebody who can encourage us. We all have our low times. We all have our difficult times. So we all need somebody who can speak life, speak hope, be an encourager to us. I have a Barnabas in my life. I'm married to her. My wife Ashton is a Barnabas. She's encouraging. Oftentimes, she's the one that hears these sermons weeks or months before you ever do, and she gives me feedback. She says, I like this, and I don't like this, but she's always an encourager. She's always building me. She's always uplifting me. You should be a Barnabas to your spouse. You should be the best Barnabas to your spouse, to encourage, to support, to uplift, to help that person's dreams. You need to be the Barnabas for your spouse more so than anybody else. Be your spouse's greatest fan, their biggest advocate. My wife's one of my Barnabas. But I also have other Barnabai, Barnabuses. <laughs> I have other people like Barnabas in my life too. <laughs> uh, several of the people who are on the board of elders here at this church, they're like a Barnabas to me. You know, this group of people, they're, they're, this group of men, they're, they're not yes men to me. They don't come to the board meetings, yes, Pastor Matt, whatever you want to do, Pastor Matt, however you want to run this church and this organization, sure, whatever you want. They're not a bunch of yes men. We have hard conversations in our board meetings. Sometimes they're heated conversations, but we go through a lot of issues when it comes to our board meetings. But what I do know and what I believe and what I trust is that these, these people are encouraging to me. They're uplifting to me. They support me. Each one of these guys is like a Barnabas to me, and they're not the only ones. I have many other Barnabases in this congregation, too. I have people who support me, who believe in me, who are thankful. I'll name one of them by name. His name's Brian Astwood. 
Brian Ashwood, every single Sunday. He listens to the sermon, and then after the sermon, either on Monday or Tuesday, he takes the time to write me an email to tell me what he liked about the sermon. Week after week after week after week for almost two years. We all need a Barnabas. We all need somebody who's encouraging. We all need somebody who sees the best in you and tells you how they see it. Somebody who's encouraging to you. Barnabas earned that reputation because he consistently encouraged people over and over, week after week after week. So nobody called him Joseph anymore. They called him Barnabas. Here's my question for you to think about. If people were to give you a nickname based on how you are, based on who you are, based on what you say, based on what you do, what would your nickname be? When I used to work in radio in Albuquerque, I was a co-host on a hip-hop morning show. <laughs> DJ Mizell, Wild 106. <laughs> and in the radio station, I remember when I applied for it, the, the host of the show, I was a co-host, but the host of the show, his nickname was Mr. Clean. And when I had listened to the show before I worked there, I was like, I don't know what Mr. Clean is. Is he like the big bald guy with the big earring and he you know, walks around cleans houses? I don't really know. But I got there on my first day on the job. I worked from 5 in the morning to 10 in the morning. So I got there at 5 in the morning on my first day on the job. And I'm, I saw Mr. Clean and I understood why he got his nickname. Because when I came in at 5 in the morning, he had a bottle of Lysol. And he was spraying the studio down with Lysol. And I was like, oh, this guy's like a germaphobe. He's like Howie Mandel style, like he won't shake your hand, like spraying everywhere. But he didn't stop spraying in the air. He sprayed the microphone, his microphone. He's, there's like four of the microphones in the studio. He sprayed every one of those microphones. He sprayed the computer. I don't know how it continued working, but he sprayed the computer, sprayed the keyboard, sprayed the whole soundboard. He sprayed the phone system. He sprayed his chair. He sprayed the carpet with Lysol. After my first day, I went to some of the other staff members in the radio station. I was like, I was like, does somebody have like pneumonia or the flu or something like that? Because he's going crazy in there. Like, is this weird? Is this abnormal? And they're like, oh no, he does this every single morning, Monday through Friday at five in the morning. I had to sit behind a Lysol microphone for over a year. I'm convinced I've, I've lost five to 10 years of my life <laughs> by inhaling the toxic fumes of Lysol for a year straight. He earned that nickname of Mr. Clean. What would your nickname be? What would people say about you? Would they refer to you as the couch potato? <laughs> Or maybe I've, I've heard of people being referred to as the Dory. I just forget, you forget everything. Like, what was I thinking? What was I saying? Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. What do you... Anyway, I could keep going on. Maybe somebody's referred to you as a Barbie. So perfect on the outside, but you don't let anybody see your flaws. You try to present yourself as, as one person, but, but you don't let people in. Maybe somebody's referred to you as a Debbie Downer before. You, you're the, the Eeyore. You're a pessimist. You're always complaining about stuff. What would be your nickname? Would somebody give you a nickname because you're an encourager or a discourager? Would they give you a nickname as somebody who's dependable or unreliable? Would they give you a nickname of somebody who is flexible or argumentative? Somebody who's loyal or fickle? Somebody who's trustworthy or shady? With a real slim shady, please stand up. Please stand up. <laughs> what would be your nickname? What would people call you based on how you are, who you are, what you do, what you say? Joseph was such an encourager that they renamed him, gave him the nickname of Barnabas because he was known for his encouragement. What are you known for? For Barnabas, it wasn't just encouragement. There's many other godly attributes that God utilized in him to literally change the course of history. 
We, our lives, my life, your life, are forever changed because of this one person, Barnabas. And let me explain how that came to fruition. If you are following along in your Bibles, turn over a couple pages from Acts 4 to Acts 9. Go over to Acts 9. And in Acts 9, we are introduced to a new character that we're going to talk about. His name is Saul. Everybody say Saul. Saul. Better not call this Saul. This Saul, this Saul is a terrorist. This Saul is a guy that hates Christians. He's going all throughout Jerusalem and he finds out where Christians are and he pulls them out of their homes and he beats them, he flogs them, he whips them, he throws them into jail. He tries to kill them. He hates Christians. He is so opposed to Christ, so opposed to people who follow after the Christ. He wants to eradicate Christianity after this Christian movement has gotten started. So he's doing everything he can, going throughout Jerusalem to, to make life a living hell for all the Christians. Well, then he sees a neighboring town called Damascus. And he's heard word that there's Christians in Damascus. And so Saul takes it upon himself. He, wants, he says, I want to go to Damascus and I want to eradicate Christianity from there. So I'm going to go over there, I'm going to beat the Christians, I'm going to flog the Christians, I'm going to throw them in jail, and I'll kill them if I can. So he decides he's going to go on this road to Damascus and go fight these Christians and go try to make life a living hell for them in Damascus. Well, on the road to Damascus, Jesus encounters Saul. Now, mind you, Jesus has already been crucified. Jesus has already resurrected. He's already appeared to hundreds of other people. But here, Saul's walking down the street on the road to Damascus, and Jesus shows up to Saul as well. That's where we jump in the story. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So at this point, Saul begins to get up. And the interesting thing is that here Saul has been trying to inflict fear on people who follow Jesus, but now Jesus is inflicting fear in Saul. His heart's probably beating fast. He just had an encounter with the living Christ who came down and intervened with him. Story continues on in verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, They heard the sound, but did not hear or did not see anyone. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So his buddies, they led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now imagine what's going through Saul's mind as he's sitting there blind in Damascus. He's not eating He's not drinking, he's lost his appetite, and he can't see anything. He's in the town where he had planned on killing people, and at least imprisoning people. He's in the town where he was going to make life havoc for all the Christians in that town, but now he can't see anything. And he just had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. What do you think is going through his heart, his his mind? He's probably thinking, maybe I've been playing for the wrong team. (laughs) Maybe this guy, Jesus, that I've been opposed to, maybe I shouldn't be opposed to him. Maybe I should be for him. Maybe I shouldn't be against him. Maybe I should be fighting for him. So he has a change of heart, change of mind while he's sitting there blind. After three days, God gives him the ability to see again. It says something like scales fall off his eyes. And rather than going back to persecuting Christians, he says, you know what? I'm going to flip the script. I'm going to go and encourage people to follow Jesus. I'm going to go and preach the good news. I'm going to go out to the synagogues. I'm going to go to the courthouses. I'm going to go to the courtyards. And I'm going to talk about Jesus. So he does. Verse 20. At once, Saul, after he got his vision back, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on Jesus' name? And hasn't he come here to Damascus to take them as prisoners to the the chief priest? Isn't this the same guy that's been like beaten and flogging and whipping Christians? Isn't this the same guy that's now preaching about Jesus? And the answer is, yes, same dude. He's had a complete change of heart. 
He was once against Jesus, now he's for Jesus. Quite frankly, part, maybe that's partly your story as well. Maybe at one point you were adamantly opposed to the things of God, and here you are. Here you are watching the live stream, and, and slowly, little by little, God's worked away on your heart and your mind, and while you were once against God, now you are for God. Saul's now flipped the script. He's all, all about following after God, not only following God, but preaching the gospel, spreading the news of Jesus throughout this whole area. So he hears about these disciples who were following after Jesus, and he's like, I want to go and join them. These guys are going from town to town, village to village, talking about Jesus. I want to do that now. I used to be against him. I don't for him. So I'm going to go and join the disciples. So he tries to go join the disciples. Verse 26, when Saul came back to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Quite frankly, understandably so. Because this dude has been murdering Christians, beating Christians. If I'm part of the disciples and I'm sitting in my living room eating Doritos and donuts and most stuff Oreos, because that's what I'd be doing. <laughs> if I'm sitting there with all the other disciples and I hear a knock on the door and I open it up and there's a little chain in the door that prevents people from kicking the door. And if I open it up and look out there and there's Saul, the guy that's been beating Christians, murdering Christians, I'm going to be like, ah, no thanks. I don't need those Girl Scout cookies. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to go back here. I'm going to go get my gun. I'm going to sit on the couch and try to wait for you if you kick the door open. I'm ready. I'm prepared. Especially all of you in Farmington. You'd have a whole plethora of guns. You'd have your arsenal. <laughs> Locked and loaded, baby. Come on in. The disciples didn't trust him. They didn't believe that he really had a change of heart, change of mind. So when Saul comes knocking, hey, can I be a part of your friend group? Can I be a part of what you're doing? They're like, no, 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 no. We know your reputation. Absolutely not. But Barnabas, this encourager, sees something in Saul. He sees something in this guy that perhaps other people don't see. And he takes a stand for Saul. Verse 27. But Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. He told the apostles how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas. It was Barnabas who took a stand for Saul. It was Barnabas who chose to vouch for Saul. It was Barnabas who took this man to the disciples and said, hey, we should have him in our friend group. We should allow him to be a part of what we're already doing. And it was because of Barnabas that they did allow Saul into the friend group. Look what happens after this, verse 28. So Saul stayed with them. Who's them? The disciples. Saul stayed with the disciples and moved freely about in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. Now Saul, that's the Hebrew name for Paul. As he begins to go out throughout town to town, village and village, more people spoke Greek than Hebrew, so he referred to himself as Paul in all these towns and villages. And it was Paul who goes on to become one of the greatest missionaries in the history of mankind. It was Paul who eventually authored 13 books of the Bible that we still read today in 2020. He authored through divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit all these books of the Bible, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. He wrote all these books of the Bible. It was Paul who we quote week after week, Sunday after Sunday, here at Pinion Hills Community Church. It was Paul's words that have shaped Christianity for centuries. It was Paul's words that have given hope to 3.78 billion people for hope and love and reconciliation and reassurance that there's a plan for the future. There's so many things of Paul's writings and his work and his effort that have shaped perhaps who you are because of Paul. But let's not lose sight of the reality. Had it not been for Barnabas, Paul never would have had the influence that he had. 
It was one guy who took a stand and said, hey, I believe in this guy. I know he used to go and kick down the doors of Christians. I know he's got a bad reputation, but I see the potential. I see this guy's heart, and I, I think we should bring him in. I think we should let him go and do whatever he wants to do in the name of Jesus. And because of Barnabas, our lives are forever changed because there was one person who was a friend to Saul. You see, Barnabas wasn't just a guy who was encouraging there's a lot of other godly characteristics that we see in his life and how he interacted with people. And, and we, what we see is that Barnabas is emulating how Jesus was. So what are these characteristics that we're looking for in, in a Barnabas type of person or perhaps a friend that he's emulating like Jesus? What should we be looking for? If we're not looking for thousands of friends, but maybe two or three, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. If there's such a thing as a, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and we need to be particular and, and careful with how we pick that person and who we pick, what should we be looking for? Based on this story and based on what we see in Jesus and his example, there's four characteristics that we want to be anchored to in our friendships. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first one is this, the anchor of dependability. The anchor of dependability. You want to find a friend who is dependable. Barnabas was dependable so much to the point where they scrapped his biological name of Joseph and they named him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He was consistent in his encouragement. He encouraged people over and over and over and over and over. He was dependable with it. We need to find people who are dependable friends. A godly friend, a dependable friend, is not somebody who flakes on you. Not somebody who bails on you. Not somebody who makes plans and then cancels on you. Not somebody who leaves you abandoned. A, a godly, dependable friend is somebody who's there for you, not just during the good times and during the laughter and the Super Bowl parties and all that, but also during the difficult times. The one that you could call perhaps at two in the morning and help you change a flat tire somewhere. That's a dependable type of friend. Look at what Solomon says in Proverbs 17, 17. He says, a friend loves, not just sometimes, at all times. And a brother is born for a time of adversity. True, good, godly friends are there for you at all times. That's the first that's the first of the, the four anchors, the anchor of dependability. The second anchor is this, the anchor of support. The anchor of support. Barnabas was a supportive friend. He supported Saul, even though nobody else did. He supported Saul when nobody else saw potential in him. And then think about it. He supported him so much that he put, Barnabas put his entire reputation on the line. Think about this for a second. What if Saul hadn't really had a change of heart? What if Barnabas vouched for him, Saul came into the group of disciples and murdered all the disciples, including Barnabas? That was very possible. But he believed, Barnabas believed so much in Saul that he said, I'm vouching for him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for him. I think he's legit. I'm willing to put my reputation, not just my reputation on the line to support him. I'm willing to put my entire life on the line to support him. We all need friends who are willing to be there through the thick and the thin and willing to support us. Galatians 6.2 says this, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to support each other, to carry each other's burdens. That's the second anchor, the anchor of support. The third anchor that we should be looking for in our friendships, lifelong godly friendships, is this, the, the anchor of influence, specifically godly influence, positive influence, Christ-like influence. You see, Barnabas was an influential to the disciples. The disciples had already cast aside Saul, but it was because of the influence that Barnabas had that it got Saul to be a part of that group. I've said thousands of times to thousands of students through the course of my time in ministry, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Your friends have influence, whether you like it or not, whether you're aware of it or not. The people that you hang out with influence you. If you hang out with a bunch of people who gossip, guess what? You're going to become a gossip. If you hang out with a bunch of people who, who are negative and pessimistic all the time, guess what? You're going to be a negative pessimist. But if you hang out with people who are godly, 
Guess what? You're going to become godly. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future, the person that you're going to become like. So it's very important that we're particular and selective when choosing our friends, that we choose people who have influence, but not just any influence, godly influence, positive influence, Christ-like influence. Solomon says this in Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That's the kind of person we should be looking for. Somebody that's challenging you, sharpening you, stretching you in a positive way, in a godly way. That's the third anchor, the anchor of influence. The fourth and final anchor that we're going to talk about this morning, the kind of friend that you should be looking for is somebody who's anchored to grace. The anchor of grace. Barnabas extended grace to Saul that was undeserved. Saul didn't deserve it. He had a bad reputation for beating up Christians, killing Christians. He wasn't deserving grace. But Barnabas saw something in him and offering an extended grace. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says this, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We're all called to be compassionate. We're all called to be loving. We're all called to be gracious. That's the kind of friend that we should be looking for. Now, to recap, there's four godly characteristics that we want to anchor ourselves to when it comes to friends. Godly friends, the kind of lifelong friends that we, we can have a few of those. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So who are you going to be surrounding yourself with? What kind of friend? Have the, that friend anchored to these four attributes. The anchor of dependability, the anchor of support, the anchor of influence, and the anchor of grace. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, I want that. How do I get that? How do I acquire that type of friend, Matt, that you're talking about? How do I get that type of friend? Three ways. If you're taking notes, write these down. Number one, be that friend. You be that friend. You be somebody who's dependable, supportive, influential in a positive way and be gracious to people. Be who you're we're looking for. Be that type of friend. I love this quote from Thomas Wilson. He says, friendship can be purchased only by friendship. So be the friend that you're looking for. So that's the first way. How do you acquire this type of godly friend that I'm talking about? How do you make sure you're not just drifting through life, that you get a quarter of three strands, you're a part of a quarter of three strands? Be that friend. Be that friend to somebody else. There's a second way that you can acquire this type of friend, which is this. Seek that friend. Because here's the reality, there's a good chance that if you're over here as a person who wants to be godly in your life, but there's a person over here that wants to be godly in their life, if we could just get you in the same place at the same time, in the same space, then maybe you could become friends. Maybe what you're looking for is what they're looking for. Maybe, just maybe, if we could introduce you to each other, if you could find that person, if you could seek that person, then maybe you'd have a lifelong friend. That's why we have this life group kickoff this coming Wednesday. The life group kickoff isn't just so we can gather together and have food together. The life group kickoff is where, where we want to invite everybody. If you're already in a life group, we want you to come. If you're not in a life group yet, we want you to come. Anybody in this church, even if you're on the live stream and not here physically at Pinion Hills today, we want you to come this coming Wednesday at Pinion Hills at 6.30. Now, why? Why? Because we have three different categories of life groups. Life groups is not just about joining another thing. It's not just more curriculum, no, it's more programming for you to go to. It's about doing life with people. That's why it's called a life group. Three categories of life groups. We have home life groups. These home life groups are, are couples or individuals or singles, or whatever. They meet in a home. They meet in a living room. They have food together. They break bread together. This is how the early church started in Acts chapter 3. This is the church. You and I are the church. They're meeting in homes. Some of them have older couples and their, their kids are grown and moved away. Some of these groups have younger couples, uh, younger married couples, and they have kids and they're all the kids are around the same age. Some of the groups that we have in home groups are singles where they're looking to marry perhaps each other. I don't know. <laughs> other groups, they, they join together based on interest. We have an ATV group. We have a quilting group. We have a, mot a, a motorcycle group. We have a mountain biking group. We have a running group. You could start a falcon group if you want to. I don't care. 
Whatever you're interested in, you can come around those common interests and do life together. We have a campus life group where people are like, well, I don't have activities or interests and I don't want to go to somebody's apartment or their home, but you could come here. Wednesdays at 6.30. We're starting a brand new series called Relatables. How do you relate to other people? How do you relate to, to people in relationships? It's the very things that we're talking about right now. We're kicking all of those groups off. No matter if you're in a group or if you want to join a group or start a group, they all are getting kicked off this coming Wednesday at 6.30 right in this room. If you haven't already registered, I would encourage you before you leave here today, go through the plaza and fill out one of those forms and register to be a part of it. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we have these life groups? Why do we spend thousands of dollars as an organization throughout the course of the year to invest and pour into and dump into life groups? Because a quarter three strands is not easily broken. And we want you to do life with other people. Yet the reality is that so many times people are content with doing life alone. Scripture is very clear, very adamant. We, need, we are designed to not be divided, but to be united. So as you're trying to be a friend and seek a friend, let me inspire you by the third fill-in-the-blank you can write in. Here's the third way to acquire a friend like this is to follow that friend. Specifically, who I'm referring to is Jesus. No greater friend than Jesus. Look at what he says, John 15, 15. He says to his disciples, but I think perhaps he might be saying to you, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Jesus looks at you, says, I want to be your friend. You've got a friend in me. Here's the question. Are you, are you going to accept that friendship? Are you going to be a friend back to Jesus? Because quite frankly, there's nobody else, nobody else who's going to be more dependable, more supportive, more influential, more gracious than Jesus. He says, true love is demonstrated to your friends like this when somebody's willing to give up their life for their friends. And Jesus did that. He gave up his life for you as his friend. And some of us are like, no thanks, I don't want to be your friend. Why? Jesus is saying, I'm willing to give up everything for you. Will you be my friend? The answer should be, absolutely. Yes, I want to be your friend and emulate his friendship. Copy his friendship and be that type of friend to other people. Be that friend, seek that friend and follow that friend. So you have a choice this morning. Keep going business as usual. Keep doing what you've been doing. Keep being isolated. Keep wearing the t-shirt that says, I'm good. Come around me. I'll shoot you. Like, I need my alone time. You could keep going that way and drift away further and further and further away from people. Or you could say, you know what? I trust God's word. And I'm going to stop making excuses. And I'm going to get together because I need to be a part of a band of brothers or band of sisters. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Because if you continue to drift away from people and drift away from these godly friendships that God is encouraging you to be a part of, there's a detriment to that. If you drift away from, from God, godly, life-giving, lifelong friends, you set yourself up to be susceptible from attacks from the enemy. Why? Because you're isolated and alone. Look at what 1 Peter 5.8 says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Guess who he's going after? The person who's isolated and alone. So the further you drift away from other people, the more susceptible you are for attacks and ruining your life. Because the enemy is kind of coming after you. He wants to seek, to kill, to destroy. He wants to ruin your life. And God says, hey, hey, an enemy can't succeed against a cord of three strands. That's not easily broken. So I want to encourage you. Don't just settle to continue drifting away. Be the friend who is dependable, supportive, influential, and gracious. Seek the friend who is dependable and supportive and influential and gracious. And follow that friend in Jesus because he is always dependable and supportive, and influential, and gracious. And when you do that, when you seek, and you, uh, you, you be that friend, and when you follow that friend in Jesus, you will finally experience the type of friendship that God has designed you and intended you to experience. Be that friend, seek that friend, and follow that friend like God has intended you to experience. Let's pray. God, we come to you now, and we say thank you 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his example. That he shows us what love is like. He is the ultimate example of somebody who's dependable and supportive and influential and gracious. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the fact that we're a part of a community where we could come together and we don't have to do life alone. God, I know there's already people who have signed up. Over 100 people have already signed up in RSVP to be here this coming Wednesday. And I know, I know there's going to be excuses that pop up. I know many people are going to be like, ah, I'm tired. I don't need to go. I'm okay. Allow us to not believe those lies of the enemy and keep drifting away from the people that we should be going towards. So God, I pray for the people who have already RSVP'd to be here this coming Wednesday for our kickoff for life groups, that they choose to be here, that they would honor their word, that they would show up. And for the people who haven't already RSVP'd, that they would leave here today and that they would sign the sheets, that they would RSVP, that they would say, you know what, I'm all about this. I'm all about it because it's in God's word. I want to be a part of a cord of three strands that's not easily broken. I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to keep drifting the wrong way. I want to go the right direction, especially when it comes to relationships and especially when it comes to friends. So God, will you bring us people that we can do life with, the people that we can grow old and see now with, people that we can do life together with for decades to come. As iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. Will you bring the people that we can be sharpened by and the people that we can sharpen? God, give us godly friends that are worth keeping, worth pursuing, worth fighting for. And if we've been drifting away, or if we have never experienced those types of friendships, will you bring them so we can experience friendships the way you've intended us to experience them? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.